Hey everyone, Miguel here. As many of you know, August is my last month at Wharton Fintech. So I want to invite you to follow and subscribe to my next adventure, 21 Leaders, a weekly podcast where I will sit down with today's global leaders that will dominate the 21st century in fintech, business, and beyond. Join me and subscribe today in your favorite podcast app, 21 Leaders. and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. In this episode, I sit down with Sean Salas, co-founder and CEO of Camino Financial, a fintech company pioneering access to affordable credit to underbanked Latino businesses. Since inception, the company has raised over $125 million in debt and equity from top industry investors. Sean grew up in between Mexico and the U.S. and holds an MBA from Harvard Business School. In this episode, we discuss Sean and his brother Kenny's journey between the U.S. and Mexico, launching Camino Financial while at Harvard Business School, and the incredible benefits of using your MBA time to start a company, importance of serving SMBs and how the company is leveraging technology to provide a more inclusive solution and improve underwriting decisions, how Camino Financial continues to innovate and why cultural nuances are important for clients, lessons and reflections for aspiring entrepreneurs, and just a lot more. Hope you enjoy my great conversation with Sean Salas. Well, Sean, thank you for joining us on the Wharton Fintech Podcast. Absolutely thrilled to have you here. Bienvenido. How are you today, Sean? I'm doing great, and it's an honor to be here. Yeah, no, we're, we're excited to, to talk uh, about you, about Camino, and all the exciting trends that you're seeing in the market. Are you joining us from, from California? Is that right? Yeah, I'm an Angelino. I was born here in Los Angeles, although I did grow up a good chunk of my life in, in Mexico and then returned back and did my stint, you know, San Francisco, New York, Boston, and then back to LA. So couldn't be happier to be back where I was born and I'm a proud Angelino. Great. So I, I guess that is a, a good segue. You always love to kick off the the interview, the podcast just by hearing from our guests, right? And then hearing about your, your background. So I know that you, you've, you've kind of lived and, and worked in, in between Mexico and the U.S. And, <laughs> you know, that's not ex the exception these days. That's a, a lot of people in, in this country. Uh, maybe yeah. you tell us about, about a little bit about your story. Yeah, well, and, I, and I'll caveat my story with telling you that sometimes I speak in wheeze because I also have a twin brother who I've been able to enjoy this journey in life in my professional development. And so if you hear me speak in terms of we versus I, it's because my better looking brother is always uh, next to me and we're always growing and building together. And so our origin story is we 
Our mom is an entrepreneur. She immigrated from Mexico in pursuit of the American dream, as millions have and will continue to do here in the United States, and saw entrepreneurship as her only means of creating generational wealth. And so my mom went all in. She opened over 30 restaurants here in Southern California. So I can never complain to my mom about working too hard. And, uh, and she reminds me about that all the time. And also, I grew up in that environment. And Kenny and I would literally fight over who would sleep in her bed at night so that we can see her. That's how hard she worked. And so that work ethic has certainly translated to Kenny and myself, although we, I like to think I spend a little bit more time with my recently born daughter, Cosette. Unfortunately, my mom did lose her business, though. And it was like a house of cards that came crashing down. And I see that a lot today, um, with, in particular with black and brown small businesses that may not have the right foundation to scale. And so that left an impression that would dictate a big part of my professional career. But before I'd get my professional element started, uh, you know, we, my mom decided to move back to Mexico. And we grew up in Mazatlán, Sinaloa, known for its amazing mariscos. And we grew up in Mazatlán until from 12 to 20 years old, came back to the United States, went to Berkeley undergrad, then cut my teeth in finance and investment banking, and thereafter private equity, Uh, Both of us worked for two of the larger, better established minority managed private equity funds here in the United States. One's called Palladium Equity Partners and another one's called ICV Partners. And they had a natural orientation towards investing in communities that look like them. By the way, we can talk about how we can bridge the gap of access to capital in black and brown communities. And a big part of that is empowering minority investment managers to do just that. And what I know one of your former uh, podcast speakers, uh, Jared, uh, we both worked at ICV Partners. So the guys at Harlem Capital. I was, yeah, I was about to ask exactly that. Uh, and he was a great guest. And it sounds like that, that sounds like ICB is, is just, they're very good at finding talent, right? At finding good people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, we're very proud alums of ICV, I will tell you that. And, and so that gives you a sense, like, we always had an orientation and predominantly influenced by my personal side of the story around investing and empowering communities of color. We also see that as a big investment opportunity, too. So it's not a charity. It's an investment opportunity, too. It's a double bottom line opportunity. And we would thereafter incubate that seed at Harvard Business School. So, so apologies for the Wharton. Um, listeners and and uh, but love the the healthy competition between both co- both schools, and and that's where we effectively incubated and started Camino Financial. Great, and and so I'm always curious. I mean, you, you were at some of the best jobs that you could find, right? I mean, investment banking is is tiring, but it's it's very rewarding. You learn a ton. Then you were private equity. Why not just continue? Have you know? a good paycheck and a prestigious job. Why, why go out the entrepreneurial route? I think, and I'm stealing this from Jeff Bezos, but the biggest regrets in life are the risks you don't take. And comfort for all the listeners that are either in the process of starting a business or making big decisions to take their business to the next level, I'll tell you this. The moment you start feeling comfort, that's a red flag. That is the biggest red flag because 
We live in a very dynamic time right now where innovation in particular in fintech is booming and comfort is a sign that you're not innovating quick enough. You're not innovating at the pace of your competitors and, and putting that in the context of even me as a financial analyst and thereafter associate in private equity, I think I was feeling a level of comfort and while I really loved what I was doing in PE, I saw an emerging opportunity investing in micro businesses. Uh, and just to qualify this, in private equity, you're investing in companies, in particular ICV, we wouldn't invest in companies that were making less than $7 million in EBITDA or cash flow. And the average size of a Latino-owned business here in the United States generates $200,000 in revenue per year. So these are not even small businesses, they're micro businesses, they're even solopreneurs. And it's clear that private equity wasn't the optimal investment vehicle for where over 85% of the market is, right? And so therefore I saw that as an opportunity to extend a new different type of investment product into the market and there lied the opportunity for credit. And how do you think the immigrant journey that you and, and your brother and your family have lived has influenced you in this direction, in the entrepreneurial direction? Yeah, well, I think, like they say in Hamilton, immigrants, we get the job done. And while I am a proud second-generation immigrant, I was born here in the United States, I can tell you that even for second-generation immigrants, we're heavily influenced by the story of our parents. And the story of our parents almost universally is... <laughs> They came to the United States in pursuit of a dream. They came to the United States in pursuit of an opportunity that they likely didn't have at their home country. And that inherently creates a spirit of entrepreneurship. In particular with the Latino market, we tend to be very entrepreneurial. And, and that's a function of what where we see the opportunity given the typical profile of someone from Latino America that's coming into the United States, right? The education levels do vary, but they tend to skew towards people that had high school at best, maybe some college. And so usually if you want to create real generational wealth, but you have all the raw material. Remember, people aren't as well educated as they would have loved because there was a lot of necessity in that home country. And so they had to work. They had to hustle. And so they, but they think that, and they know, in fact, that they can bring that hustle here to the United States and get 10x return on that investment relative to that investment in their home country. So naturally, we are entrepreneurial. And so that certainly rubs off here for, you know, second generation immigrants like myself. And then I did have the benefit, and this is now a bit more unique to my story relative to other Chicanos here in the, in the U.S. that were born in the United States and have only lived in the United States is that I had a chance to go back and experience my Mexican roots and experience, one, the beauties of Mexico, and two, the limitations of the opportunities that were available to me. And, and I only saw the opportunity to really, where the, the sky is the limit here in the United States. And so I re-immigrated to the United States 
and in many ways lived that immigrant story. And it helped me appreciate what we have here. I never take for granted the opportunity here in the United States. Never. And unless you've experienced the flip side of that story, that hunger. So I've been able to experience how much hungrier I am, right? Having been able to live both sides of that story. And so that's what I think immigrants bring to the table. Yeah, I, I always love talking about the, the immigrant journey, the immigrant mentality. I'm an immigrant myself. I grew up kind of living all over the world and came here for college and there's no place like the US. It's just, you know, you can unleash your full potential. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and speaking of, of that, right? So let's, let's talk about Camino. I, uh, you, let's talk you, about you, Camino. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you started in HBS, yep. right? Maybe tell us about those early days and then, you know, when did you decide to actually take it full time? Yeah, so, so the evolution of Camino really started with, as we talked about the origin story and seeing credit as an investment product or investment vehicle into the underbank Latinx market, right? That was the seed that was planted. And now having, and I won't speak just to HBS, I'll speak to the MBA experience in general, because I think there is a very, I think B-schools are doing a better job at dispelling concerns around innovating while at B-school. But I'll be open and honest with you. When I joined HBS, I joined for a variety of reasons, but one of them wasn't starting a company. I knew I wanted to start a company, but that wasn't the reason why I went to HBS. And the reason why I, I didn't have the mentality or the expectation at least to start a company while I was at HBS was purely because I kept on hearing, if you're truly an entrepreneur, you don't need an MBA to start a company, et cetera, et cetera. And, and what, I was, what I found in business school was something really exciting, which is there's no better place. There are very few better places <laughs> to incubate a startup other than incubating next to really talented people next to you that are open and willing and investing two years of their life to innovate beside you in their respective startups. So you have that peer environment that is just ripe for innovation, for creating amazing startups. You have the mentorship from, and some is structured, some is not as structured from the professors. I'm proud to say that there were not one, but two, but three professors from HBS that invested in Camino Financial. And being able to say that, that what's, first of all, that's a huge vote of confidence. Second of all, I still have a very healthy relationship with all three of them. I can email them and within minutes, if not hours, I'll get a response and they'll give me very thoughtful feedback on what we're doing. And so, and then the third thing, and I, and I think obviously money is important, <laughs> And obviously, there's always a question around the offset of the cost of the MBA relative to you starting the company where you can invest in the, in the company. And I'm proud to tell you that over 90% of the money that came in in our pre-seed and seed stage came from investors that were either alums of Harvard or were introductions from alums of Harvard. And so in many ways, starting Camino was a effectively a big part of my MBA experience. And, and we were able to iterate and learn and get it off the ground before we graduated in, in 2015. So I'll start there. Now, the second part of that is, 
of course, what has Camino Financial become? And so we knew that the credit was an interesting opportunity. I'll start with the answer. Today, we're our fintech platform offering affordable credit to underbank small businesses, predominantly in the Latinx market. 25% don't have credit history. The median account balance of any given bar is $2,300, and our average check size is around $16,000. So we're lending to thin file cash-based micro businesses, businesses that have not gotten the credit they deserve literally. And for those that do get credit, we're able to offer a product that reduces their monthly payments by on average 40%. So we're very competitive and we're able to do that by innovating through technology and AI to drive down those costs as much as possible and design the platform for scale. That's what we do, but getting there was really hard. Uh, It's easy for me to tell you what we are today, right? But the path to getting there was a function of leveraging the relationships that I was telling you and innovating the business model in a way that would be differentiated in the market and still garner the attention of different types of investors that saw an opportunity to get a real return on their investment. And that was an iterative process. We can go into the details if you like, but that's effectively how we got Camino Financial off the ground. And how about a topic that we talk about a lot here is talent, (laughs) right? Obviously, your company is your people, right? How did you find those first few employees and what were your your biggest challenges uh, when starting out? Yeah, wow. Talent, talent, talent. And I know it sounds like that's a common theme and everyone that you hear that's a top performer, not that I would put myself in the same category. I'm an aspiring top performer, always aspiring, always humble. But I, I, I learn from others. That's one of my biggest productivity and entrepreneurial hacks, learn from others' mistakes. And, and one common theme you hear, Miguel, is you're just as good as the people around you. And it really, I couldn't agree with you more on that. I think the struggle now, I knew that answer a long time ago, way before I started Camino Financial, right? And I was thinking about this the other day, like, yeah, okay, I get it. I know what the output is. But the input is not as easy because you're barely starting, especially if you're a first-time entrepreneur, innovating in a space where you have tangential experience, but not full experience. I was an institutional investor in, in private equity, middle market private equity, right? I mean, there was a orientation towards investing in minority-owned businesses or businesses that were impacting minority communities. But as I told you, most black and brown businesses are much smaller than the typical private equity investment. And so put that together, it's hard to sell a vision and get the best top talent that you can imagine. Well, the good news is if there's ways to hack it, right? And my first hack was Kenny, (laughs) my twin brother. I think the second hack is, once again, going reverting back to the concept of building a business while in B-school, that is a pool of talent. And it's a pool of talent that's willing to take risks. They're at an inflection point in their careers where they're like, look, I'm not going to focus on money as much. I'm going to focus on learning and moving, you know, you know, skating where the puck is going. And so, so that was a hack that really worked very well for us at Camino Financial. And then, of course, good people attract other good people. And so I think that's 
That's, I think, really important. I'll give you a second part of that. So that was the hack, and then we built on that hack. I think the second part of talent development and 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 retention is, and this is a big one. I, I just was really inspired by Reese Hastings, the, the CEO of Netflix or former CEO of Netflix book, No Rules, Rules. And one of the quotes really got me. He's like, one of the hardest parts in business is not necessarily firing people, but firing people that are good, but not great. That's deep. That's deep, right? Think about that. Firing people that are good, but not great. And because, you know, the difference between great and good comes at a very high opportunity company like Camino Financial. And so thinking through that as a theme is something that I'm wrapping my head around a lot because we can't afford big opportunity costs as it relates to our people because people is what drive the business. That said, I'm going to give you a counterpoint to that point, which is the third point that I'm saying, which is you need to be really good at finding good prime material and build a core competency about molding it into rockstar talent. And I think about that a lot, in particular, when it comes to recruiting and developing black and brown associates. Here's the E-True Hollywood story, everybody. And for those who are like, oh, how do I develop diverse talent? Or how do I recruit diverse talent? They didn't even ask, how do I develop? They asked, how do I recruit diverse talent? And it's like, you can't just recruit, you need to develop. And you need to create a program or partner with the right people that will help you do that. Case in point, Sean Salas. I would not be where I am today if it wasn't for SEO. That's a program designed to create internships on Wall Street for minorities, period, case in point. And there is a very robust training program that precedes the beginning of your internship, where it's basically a boot camp on how to become a banker. And then throughout the whole summer, you take different workshops and meet with different people in the industry so that you can further develop and hone in those skills. And there's a reason for that. Like, I can tell you right now, it's not apples to apples. Our our launch point is not the same for other demographics. Why? Because chances are our parents didn't have the resources that other parents and other demographics had, period, case in point. Right. And so but that doesn't mean we're not prime material. In fact, if you mold us and develop us, then we have that hunger, that immigrant hunger that I was telling you about that you can't recreate that you have it or you don't. And, and, and so I all equally see that as a big untapped opportunity. So it's not just about re-recruit the best talent on paper that come from X schools and have all this experience coming in day one. No, 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 no. That's also the wrong way of thinking about it as well. And so we need to think about um, how we develop that talent. So in summary, it's find the hacks. In my case, B-School was a big starter hack. Two, try to muster the courage <laughs> to you know fire good people that aren't great, but at the same time, make sure that you're being thoughtful around building a diverse team that revolves around very good prime material and molding that into rockstar talent. So that's the way I approach that. Yeah, I remember most of my colleagues on Wall Street, they they were coming from those programs, I think it's MLT and SEO. And I was always jealous because uh, uh, they seem to know so much. It's, it's such a great training, but a lot of them probably would 
would not have landed those jobs without it. I wouldn't have. Yeah. I wouldn't have. I'll tell you right now. I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for SEO. So, you know, we, you, you were mentioning that a lot of your customers are, are thin file customers. And, and we've talked to fintech startups that take the same approach, but for individuals, right? And mm -hmm. I mean, one that comes to mind is Petal, right? You're taking that approach for SMBs. Uh, maybe tell us about the technology piece, right? How did you approach building the right credit scoring mechanisms? And you know what? Um, maybe tell us a little bit about your secret sauce for for the tech that you're applying. Yeah, and by the way, it's so cool. Remember, I told you, before this call, I told you about meeting different entrepreneurs on the weekends and and learning from others and so forth. Guess one of them was Jason at Pedal. Oh, I love it. <laughs> before love he, it. <laughs> before the first institutional dollar came into the company, oh, I and uh, and I've only been able to see Jason grow Pedal in an exciting way. And under the underlying thesis around there are these thin file, no file, underbanked consumers out there that, with a different lens and underwriting, you can unlock a lot of value and still get call it prime to near prime level returns and risk profiles. And I think Jason was really smart at untapping that market. And so, you know, kudos to Jason. Just wanted to make that quick call out. As it relates to communal financial, you're absolutely right. So there are a lot of nuances around how you underwrite. And it's not just, I think when we talk about consumers, we focus a lot on the thin no file, right? When we talked about businesses, the cash flow component of what you're doing is a lot more prominent. And to be fair, actually, I know Pedal does this. You can't use the, the traditional means, right, of underwriting the cash flow of the business as you would do someone that is every penny that they earn is going, flowing through their bank account. And so you can use that bank account to really create a proxy, a very strong and accurate proxy based on I would say even a better, it's not even a proxy, it's a better, more accurate data point than even a tax return, for instance, to get a strong sense of the cash flows of the business. But now let's talk about one of the stats that I told you at the beginning of this call, which is that the median account balance for any given borrower that we lend into is $2,300. And our average check size is give or take anywhere around $16,000, right? And so we're... You know, relative to the cash that's reported in the bank account, we're giving large check sizes into the market. But it's not because we're in, in any way, and we never, and I say never with a capital N, want to overlever our creditors or our, our borrowers. Our goal is we use different data points that can be better proxies for cash flows in the absence of a rich pool of bank transaction data. That's not to say we don't look at the bank transaction data, but we look at other data points that help us create a proxy. And that, and that methodology is called income surrogate underwriting, where you're based effectively using proxies for cash flows. And let me be clear, you cannot, let me give you an example. This is not an example that's in our model, but it's an illustrative example so the audience understands what I'm talking about. Doing cost-based analysis on the cash flows is actually really effective for consumers and businesses at the bottom 
at the base of the pyramid, right? Because they don't have a lot of discretionary funds. And so if you can get a better sense of what their cost base is, then you can actually probably get a really good sense of how much cash that they have. So in summary, the illustrative example I would use is I can't predict Warren Buffett's net worth based on the car that he drives. I think he drives a Cadillac, right? That's not even of the year. And but because his cost base is nothing close to what his net worth is. But when we're talking about businesses and consumers at the base of the pyramid, you can actually proxy with a high level of accuracy. That, that alludes to the second element of what our underwriting does, which it needs to be very dynamic. Not all credits are made equal, especially in the underbanked market. And so sometimes what we find in traditional lending is that there is a very strict credit box and a very strict set of documentation. And if you can't match those two, deny. And there's a lot of reasons behind that. There's a lot of real regulatory reasons behind that from a banking standpoint. And so what fintechs have is the ability to be a lot more flexible in segmenting different markets based on different data availability and still creating a risk ranking pricing model for each segment. And so that's effectively what we've done. And then third, and back to the, the no credit, uh, we've developed an alternative credit score called the Camino score that with a standard set of data in that scenario, we're able to score individuals in the absence of having a credit profile or even having a thin credit profile. So we, we and, and of course, you can't do any of this without the ability of technology so that you are creating a, a platform that's scalable in this decision making process. And so we were we were digital first in the context of building, but also in the context of offering this product into the market, too, because from a channel perspective, that's where the dominant strategy has been offline versus online. You know, we've been at this for seven years, and so we were able to also see an innovation opportunity, not just in the automation and scaling of the decision-making engine, but also in how we package and distribute the product directly to our borrowers. And so having been at it for seven years, I imagine you know your client really well at this point. What have been some of those learnings maybe products or adjustments that you've done based on customer feedback? Yeah, so there are a lot. Every time we peel back the onion, we learn more and more and more about how unique and interesting it is to innovate within this market. Because of course, the feedback we used to get initially was, is this market big enough? How are you differentiated relative to some other players like Cabbage that are doing something similar to you, but on a general market basis and so forth. And we found a few different nuances. And, and the way I'll overgeneralize the example is using a, another analogy, which is why does my mom go to the grocery market? She goes to the grocery market because it's local. It's branded in a way that appeals to her cultural background. She goes in. Not only does she see tortillas, everyone sees tortillas, but you know certain ingredients that you only would get from a market that specialized in the Latino market, right? She sees it at price points that are affordable to her, accessible to her. And then she goes to a cash register and she's able to see someone that not only looks like her, but speaks her, her language of preference. So let, let's translate to the Camino financial model. You know, we are placing ourselves, initially it wasn't intuitive, but we created a digital brand and presence that was local 
to the Latinx market. We've been able to design a credit underwriting model that makes credit otherwise be more accessible and affordable to this specific market base. And that's just not a function of credit underwriting. That's a function of aligning your debt partners, your debt investors with that credit model. That's huge, Miguel. Like that one part right there, that gives you a competitive advantage on pricing, which translates today into monthly payments that are 40% lower than that of our competitors. So just the numbers speak for themselves. Specialization translates into lower cost, period, case in point. And then of course, from a servicing and member experience, we actually don't call our borrowers borrowers, we call them members. We also know, remember I was telling you about prime material and then developing it? We have a saying at Camino Financial, Capital in isolation is not the solution. I'll repeat that. Capital in isolation is not the solution. What does that mean? That means that we need to offer our members tools and resources so that they can maximize the return on that investment that they're going to make with our loan, period, case in point. And so we've also built a very strong competency around content. We've actually built the largest bilingual content library here in the United States. And so, which attracts hundreds of thousands of users, and we're going to hit the over a million uh, monthly unique users, hopefully, if not by the end of this year, soon. And the goal is, of course, to scale that content strategy, both to attract prospective borrowers, but also to equip our existing members, right, with the tools and resources that they need so that they can effectively, you know, follow that camino, that path that we're designed, which is graduating into lower interest rate, longer term loans, graduating them into secured loans, and then eventually other financial products and services. That kind of ties to what's going to be my next question, which is the next step, right? What's next? When you, when you think of the next you know, seven years, because you've been doing it for seven already, yeah. uh, what's in store and what would be an ideal outcome for you? Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy that you asked that, Miguel. Um, so we've been at this for seven years. We've developed a credit model and the underlying technology that gives us the ability to not only extend our current credit product, which is a microloan between five dollars to $75,000 unsecured, predominantly used for working capital and growth capital. But now the next phase of what we're going to do is to go from a monoline credit product strategy to a multi-line credit product strategy, leveraging the underlying foundation that we've built to develop other products with increasing complexity. Now, as a byproduct of that, we're now transitioning from what I would describe as a tech-driven company to a data-driven company, where the power of AI enables us to scale that decision-making process a lot faster than we otherwise would be able to do. And not just in our credit decision-making. A lot of people talk about AI in the context of making smarter, quicker decisions, and then eventually you translate into machine learning, right? That you, you, where you can put that on autopilot. <laughs> and and there, there are use cases for Camino Financial there. Where I see the bigger use cases, because you have to be careful about machine learning and credit decision-making because you need to explain that to regulators and your investors. <laughs> That's not easy to do. <laughs> um, but I think maybe some of the bigger use cases are how do you target your market more efficiently? How do you detect fraud more efficiently? How do you, that content piece of our model, how can we basically you know, recommend content and tools based on the profile 
of the member and the part of their camino, their journey that they're currently in. Um, how can we translate some of these credit decision-making models into other products and services? And so going from a monoline credit strategy to a multi-line credit strategy is the next step. And I'm happy to tell you that we will be doing that very soon, like days, not months, not weeks. Okay. So really excited for that. Keep your guys up for that. But there's more. Love it. <laughs> there's more. Now we've, we've created, call it a direct-to-market strategy and core competency around credit, not just with one product, but multiple products and an underlying foundation around tech and AI. Now we can package those capabilities and sell that to different banks and corporate partners. And that's what gets me very excited. That's what gets me very excited about Camino Financial. And right now, quite frankly, there is a growing demand among banks and corporations to leverage these types of services so that they can be bigger participants in financial inclusion. And we've seen virtually every large bank has committed billions of dollars in investing in black and brown entrepreneurs in particular. And so one element of our business that enables us to do that better than anyone else in the market, and it took us three years to do it, is we are now a designated community development financial institution. That's a designation from the Treasury Department. And for a variety of reasons, some of which are regulatory, Banks can only exclusively work with CDFIs to offer these types of services to their customer base. Now, here's the interesting thing. We're the first data-driven, AI-powered CDFI in the market with a national designation, period, case in point. So when people ask me, who are you, what do you do? I say we're a neo-CDFI. I don't say we're a neo-bank. There's an opportunity there, but that's not the opportunity we're pursuing. We see a bigger opportunity in positioning ourselves as a neo-CDFIs because neo-CDFIs are inherently financial inclusion platforms that partner with banks and different corporates. And so if you read through a lot of the capital commitments that, that are being made, both by banks, the government, and even companies like Starbucks that committed $100 million to black and brown entrepreneurs, and they're investing exclusively through CDFIs and MDIs, minority depository institutions. And yet there aren't any CDFIs of scale that built the foundation that we've done. And so we think that uniquely positions us as a key player in the market. Listen, I, you know, I can see that there are tailwinds uh, right now. They're obviously <clears throat> energizing and helping your business, but you're only able to take advantage of those because you've been preparing and working on it for years. Exactly. Exactly. We built the foundation for seven years and it was painful, by the way. Uh, but now we think we have the foundation that we can package into an enterprise solution for these different partners. Kudos to you. And, and Sean, before we go, you know, we have quite a few uh, entrepreneurs and aspiring builders tuning in. What would you advise as, as someone who's been doing this for close to a decade? You know, what, what should they be thinking about well, that's a, that's a big question. And I think what they should be thinking about is following their passion because it's hard, but making sure that passion is calibrated with good business sense. <laughs> I, I, I think the difference between an entrepreneur and a entrepreneur is a entrepreneur is someone that just leads with passion and doesn't have that business sense. And an entrepreneur is someone that's being able to calibrate the two. 
And so I invite people to really pursue their passions because you only have one life and you have to live your best life and enterprise in that context. But I also think that you, in particular with my black and brown brothers and sisters out there, we tend to be more charitable at heart and it's time for us to be a bit more selfish about what we do and how we make money because only then can we create wealth that passes on to our next generations. And that's where we're disadvantaged, people. We're not creating enough wealth that passes to other generations. We call that well, um, a generational wealth creation or building what we call in Spanish, patrimonio. And my goal is to ensure that we can all build patrimonio for our communities. That's really important. Now, I have the benefit, and I say that like, follow your passion, but also calibrate it with business sense. I'm the luckiest man in the world because I'm able to do that and give back to the community and be super like, quote, charitable. And once again, it's not a charity, but what we're doing is effectively creating generational wealth, which makes me feel incredibly empowered and humble about the opportunity that's been presented not just to me, but to our associates at Camino Financial. And so, yes, that's that's my recommendation. Well, Sean, congratulations. Uh, love what you're doing. Please keep going with the same energy. I'm excited for what's next for you, for your brother, for your family, for Camino. And I just congratulate you again. And thank you for stopping by. I, I'm not going to repeat the, the name of the school you went to, but, you know, it's, it's, not, <laughs> it's not worth it, but it doesn't matter. You, you're a friend of worth it now. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so thank you so much. No, thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. 